Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Lily K Show. I'm so glad you're all here today. Boy, do we have news to cover. Donald Trump is back in the race, and the feminists, of course, are really angry about it. Donald Trump, as we all know, has kind of underperformed in the last two years. What I mean by that is, obviously, he's been out of office, but he's been kind of turning into a little bit of an angry old guy, bitter who basically wants his justice back, which is completely understandable. But after his speech last night, my opinion about him has actually shifted a little bit. Now, not that I never liked Trump in the past two years. I voted for him twice and I fully intend to do so again if he becomes a Republican uh, primary nominee. But there's a lot more hope in this Trump era, okay? And that's really what I want to talk about because his energy was not ego-driven in the speech that he gave last night announcing that he is going to be running for president again. His energy was for hope of the country. It was more so and and more of a remnant of that 2016 Donald Trump that we know and love that basically got all of us rallied up and excited about a positive moral vision for America again, as opposed to some sort of the 2020 election was stolen and it's about my ego and it's about Donald Trump and that's all it's about. Because a lot of people are saying they turned away from Trump and they're gluing themselves to themselves to DeSantis because DeSantis is very forward about the message. DeSantis is very loyal to the message, whereas Trump is very loyal to himself. However, that hope and that 2016 message has kind of come back. Now, a lot of people are saying, unfortunately, his energy was not there. And I'm like, look, guys, he has two years to campaign. Do you think he's going to come out of the gate kicking and screaming or do you think he's going to ramp up? Uh, the Trump of the last two years has become um, empty of everything that was positive and more of moral vision for the country. But I think finally he's recovered that because he actually laid out a State of a Union-esque address about um, what he wants to see done in the country, what he's going to promise to get done if he's reelected, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was a very self-controlled and restrained speech, which which is not something that we're going to see that we're used to seeing from Donald Trump, which um, is really important. Why? Because the reason he lost the 2020 election, have all your conspiracy theories if you want to. But one of the major reasons he lost was because he lost a bunch of female voters, female voters. Now, the more brash female voters like myself, we like a rude and uh, sticking it to the man Donald Trump. But most suburban women don't like that. And that's where Trump wildly underperformed in the suburban women category. So if he can keep up this elegant, self-controlled Donald Trump, then he already has the base that's going to vote for him no matter what. He also is going to have the base of hopefully winning over those suburban women back because women, like it or not, are a really big, big voter block. And the Democrats, especially in the midterms that we saw, won 73% of single women. Now, do I think all of those women could be converted to Trump? Probably not. Probably a lot of them are diehard Democrats because they aren't married or don't have children or other factors. But I do think that Trump not being his mean tweet self will actually do a lot of good for convincing the establishment women voters who are interested in a in a in a safe politician who is not basically making everyone mad. Trump, as he said, really wants to go hard on immigration, which was a great part of his you know first appeal as uh, president elect in 2016 and something that he did and performed really well on, of course, 
during uh, his presidency. Of course, we're so thankful for that. But what's nice about his speech last night is that he didn't focus on the whole Mexican rapist talking point. He didn't focus completely on the, okay, I'm only going to shut down the border because we don't need any other people, which is something that the right wing guys really are excited about. But Trump did something that was a lot more diplomatic. What did he focus on in the immigration conversation? He focused on drugs and human trafficking. He's saying, there are drugs pouring over our borders and there those drug dealers are responsible for killing hundreds and hundreds of people. And this is something that has taken the highest death toll in the United States, even more than COVID in the last couple of years. And he focused on human trafficking. He focused on the industry that has been alive because of people coming over the border and the industry that's been allowed to flourish simply because the border has been open. Now, that's a much more attractive message than all Mexicans are rapists. Let's castrate and kill them all. Now, that's a great message. And I, uh, I mean, not all Mexicans are rapists, not that part, but the part of castrating and killing rapists 100% do it. But that's not going to win over the suburban moms who go grocery shopping and care that their kids are going to be safe and not have fentanyl put in their systems involuntarily because of Halloween candy, right? That's a message that's going to win over women and moms specifically, which is a voter block that Trump has historically underperformed on. Suburban women also tend to vo vote a little bit more with their emotions. And so anytime you can quell their emotions and avoid the rapist rhetoric and more focus on let's protect your children, you are going to perform better with women. That's just how it is. Trump also focused on the economy. Pretty easy as an argument to focus on why the economy is going sour, why Trump did a really good job with the economy, how we can rebuild it. Um, because every person with a credit or debit card today is able to see that the economy is completely in shambled. And um, that's always a good Trumpian argument to go for because that's something that he genuinely has. He's showing off. The, the strategy for Trump in this next campaign is showing off how well he performed as a president, showing off his accomplishments, and a, again, that positive moral vision for America, which is something that he's lost in the last two years as being out of office probably naturally comes with just being out of office and being butthurt about losing the last election. But, you know, that's really something that's going to heighten him and gain a lot of support for him as he's campaigning. Also, the time is a little bit quizzical because it's obviously so early. He has two years of straight campaigning to do. So when people, again, are like, wow, Donald Trump is so unenergetic. Well, that's probably because he wants to be mature and he wants to be self-controlled because one of the reasons why he lost the 2020 election is because he's so unhinged. Another thing that I really liked about Trump's speech is that toward the end, he actually asked for prayer, which is something that um, is really humble. He's remarkably relatable for a billionaire former president, and I think that's something that he's working to his advantage. He is able to really garner a lot of relatability, not only because he's so funny, but also because he's humble and he's humble enough to ask for prayer from people, which makes us understand that he's maybe not as prideful, not as ego egotistical as... Um, as we think. Now, that could have been a line just scripted in, but it's definitely a line that will go over well. And here's my honest answer about 2024. First of all, Ron DeSantis has not announced he's running for president. At this point, I also don't know if he will, just because Trump is running, and I don't think Trump is beatable in the primary, the Republican primary. Is he beatable in the general election? Yes, because he got put out of office last year. Uh, election cycle for presidency. I think Ron DeSantis is awesome, but I hope he doesn't run. I know that's like such a crazy statement to come out with so early, but 
I think Ron DeSantis has done a lot of incredible stuff as governor, as we've all seen. I also think he's done an incredible job showing the conservative movement how to actually be effective for once. I also think that I don't want to be put in a position where I'd have to choose between DeSantis or Trump in a primary. I don't want to be put in that position. I like both of them. I really, really like both of them. I also think that Donald Trump is too valuable to lose. Let's just put this in perspective. Donald Trump is really old. Um, he's sharp. He's hilarious. He has all the things going for him. He doesn't need to be the president. He has, you know, a whole entire job, but he's getting old. And one thing that happens to all humans is death. I think that if, you know, Trump, it's now or never. Ron DeSantis, I know everybody's like, oh, it's now or never if he's governor. Sure. Timing is everything in politics. And I know that Ron DeSantis is going to be out of office regardless come 2026 because that's just you know Florida has gubernatorial term limits and he's not going to be able to um, run again for Florida governor so that's a question for Ron DeSantis whether he wants to use his momentum now to run for president but again Ron DeSantis is young young guy he's a young guy Trump is really old Trump is not going to be as sharp as he is as energetic as he is for the whole entire rest of his life right so I think it'd be silly not to use Donald Trump right now with everything that he is, with everything that he accomplished, weaknesses and all. He did amazing stuff for our country. He woke the movement up and he basically showed the establishment everything that they're doing wrong and gave us, us, Republicans, something to compare the establishment to this new MAGA movement to, okay? He has done so much good. Why would we not at this current moment? We need someone who's a fighter. Ron DeSantis is a fighter too. Yes, 100%. Ron DeSantis is younger and he has more time. And Ron DeSantis is very tactical. And also the office of the president is very different than the office of the governor. Let's just be honest. There's a lot of bureaucracy. I'm sure of it. In Florida, there's way more liberal blob bureaucracy in in the executive offices. I mean, when you are put on that national scale, how, how is a governor going to fare? And I know that being a governor sets you up automatically for a pretty decent campaign or run or a, a set of accomplishments to look back onto if a governor is to run for president, which most of them end up wanting to do anyway. But again, Trump and DeSantis are both fantastic for the movement. They both have different strengths and they are both necessary for the survival and the longevity of this party. But again, Trump is getting old and he is so unique. He is so powerful and the media hates him so much that I'm looking at it and I'm like, why would we not use him? Why would we not use the freaking tank that Donald Trump is as um, Ron DeSantis is a lot younger, you know? But of course, like I said, everything is coming down to timing in politics. But so it's looking and obviously like Ron DeSantis has literally not even announced that he's going to run for president. He also has pretty much two years to decide whether he's going to do that or not and garner support and whatnot if he does decide. But truthfully, my honest answer is I hope that Ron DeSantis does not run because I don't want to be put in a position where I'd have to choose between Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump in a Republican primary. Because I don't know who I choose. They are both strong, tactical, diplomatic fighters. I think they're both awesome. I think Donald Trump should pick Carrie Lake as a vice president. Why? She unfortunately just lost her gubernatorial race in Arizona, which <laughs> Arizona elections are a whole thing of its own. And I'll defer to Charlie Kirk and his team for doing awesome, amazing coverage of that. Carrie Lake is amazing. She's MAGA, but she's elegant. She is 
well-spoken. She puts the media in their place every time she talks to them. She's promises made, promises kept. She has that showman's ability, the market ability, and she's very competent. And she has no official office obligations as of right now because I truly do believe the shenanigans that happen in Arizona are unfreaking believable. So I think Carrie Lake would be a fantastic VP. Would she also be a really good press secretary? Oh, man, that would be powerful. But also Kaylee McEnany is like the queen at that. So I wouldn't want to take that opinion or, or that job away from Kaylee McEnany because literally she is the sweetheart angel of the Trump, <laughs> the Trump MAGA movement, um, as well as Melania. So I wouldn't want to take Kaylee McEnany away from the press secretary position where I think Carrie Lake would also be equally as effective. But I think that, gosh, Carrie Lake would be a fantastic vice president. All right. Hey, Nathan. Hey, what's up, Lily? Nothing much. Glad to have you here. I appreciate it. Thank you for letting me come on here. Oh, good. It's a good time being on the Lily Kate show here. Uh, you're so kind. Um, let's just jump right in. Can you give us a rundown of Louisiana politics? Like what's been going on lately? What have you guys passed lately? Are you majority red and majority blue? How have they been doing and what are some of the important stats? Yeah, totally. So I would say Louisiana is a unique state and that's just not my opinion being a resident here. I just think that we have a unique state on a variety of things, especially when it comes to politics. So as you can guess, Louisiana is a pretty solid red state as a majority. I mean, in 2020, the state voted about 60% for President Trump. And then all of the statewide offices, excluding governor, that's a whole different story there. But yeah, we have a vast majority of our elected officials outside of the New Orleans area are Republicans. So we're a, a pretty deep red state. But I'd say we're a pretty swampy state when it comes to politics. I'm both mm. literally and uh, figuratively there. Even though the GOP has a, a firm stronghold on the state's politics, I wouldn't say we have too many what you could call MAGA or America First Republicans in our states. Fairly establishment. I mean, it's kind of similar to Texas in some ways that even though the electorate seems to love President Trump and his agenda, a lot of our politicians here, unfortunately, don't seem to align with the values of the many Christian conservative, America first conservative voters here in our state. I mean, you can look to even one of our senators voted to impeach President Trump back in 2020, uh, Senator Man. Bill Cassidy. So it's uh, it's an interesting place, you know, so I'm trying to get a lay of the land over here. But that's what my experience has been like so far. Yeah, very establishment. I, I like what you said. You're like, we're not MAGA America first yet. I'm sure you will definitely in this next upcoming election cycle, we're going to see kind of a shift between, you know, we've already been seeing that. Obviously, Liz Cheney was booted from office and is like, oh, yeah, well, I might not even vote Republican anymore. And we're like, oh, no. Boohoo. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do without you? And so I definitely like you're seeing a split between the establishment and the America first Christian conservatives who are actually getting ready to for the fight and on Trump's side, basically. And so we're I guess we'll just kind of see this shifting as it's happening. And it's interesting, too, because you're right. Texas is very establishment. I mean, it is hard to get around that pack money. It's hard to be America first. It's hard to be a genuine Christian conservative without compromising a lot because the Texas lobby is just 
so huge. And so I imagine you're facing that same thing in, in uh, Louisiana. So, right. What is weird to me, though, is that your governor is like a Democrat. Isn't that correct? Yes, we were the only state in the South or the Deep South that has a Democrat governor. So that's an interesting twist to our political scene here. Right. So how, how do you think that happened since obviously Louisiana is so red outside of the major cities? Yeah. So this was before my time of getting involved with politics. So I was able to vote in the last uh, election for the governor, but it was before I was really involved with state and local politics here. But in Louisiana, we have what's called a jungle primary. So in a lot of other states, you have a Republican and a Democrat go against each other in the general election. Well, the thing is, in Louisiana, it's the top two vote getters. So you could have two Republicans or two Democrats, depending on who gets the most uh, most votes, if none of the candidates get above 50 percent. So you really had an issue in the last elections. So this was back in 2019 for our gubernatorial race then. So our governor, John Bell Edwards was running against two Republicans and the Republicans split the vote. And then in the wow. runoff, not all the Republicans kind of rallied around behind the guy who won. So, and they're also, he also won back in 2015 as well. So him being an incumbent in 2019 helped a good bit as well. But I, I just think it overall speaks to how in Louisiana, even though the Republicans have a strong hold on most of the elected offices, it's not really well organized. As a whole, I'd say that's one difference between Texas and Louisiana politics is that Texas, there's definitely more uh, stuff you have to fight through, I think, to get into power. In Louisiana, even though there's an establishment, I wouldn't say they have as much sway or power as I think that Texas uh, establishment Republicans do. So, yeah, it's just that stuff isn't organized too well over here as a whole. So there's a lot of things going on. Yeah, the, it's funny because the best way to become governor is to already be governor because um, you definitely face your best chances of winning if you're already there. <laughs> um, but, you know, Louisiana is very interesting because you guys are the only ones that pretty much um, operate under a different form of law, like civil law, than the rest of the United States. Obviously, like to be a lawyer in Louisiana, you have to like basically study Napoleonic law because so much of the French influence went straight to Louisiana. So you you have this like Southern French, you know, whole vibe. And that's what y'all pride yourselves on. And so it is just really interesting. I didn't realize you had a tomb top majority. You, you guys just run against each other. And it is unfortunate that, you know, Republicans, like we just said, they're, they're divided. Yes. But between MAGA and establishment, but when it's two establishment, you know, Republicans running against one Democrat, it's kind of like, well, what do we do? Who do we rally around? And, you know, definitely the smaller scale um, of the state would tell me that maybe the politics is a little less organized because Louisiana, obviously, it's much smaller than Texas and your industry isn't as large as Texas, even though yes. we are neighbors. And so that definitely like that definitely plays into it. Um, one thing that I always notice whenever I go over and go to colleges like LSU or go hang out in Baton Rouge, New Orleans, um, is y'all's road quality is just not it's just not there <laughs> yeah you're not kidding we have a lot of jokes about that in uh, new orleans there was a, a while there's a local television show that would have a pothole of the week to oh, celebrate how bad our roads are over here so yeah infrastructure pretty weak over here that's one thing i didn't realize other places could have like nice roads and stuff i don't think a lot of the roads have been fixed since huey long was governor 
back in the day, honestly. So it feels like that, honestly. Right. Well, we're definitely hoping for that to be overhauled at some point because, yeah, driving through Louisiana, your car has to be very tough. But I wanted to get your opinion on a question that has always been aired in Texas. Okay, there's this whole like. Texas first movement because we can be patriots to America, but as you know, and as you're, you're half a Texan because you went to school here, but like, I mean, Texans, we're proud to be Texan. We will let everyone know that we are Texan and we will let everyone know that our economy is better than everybody else's. And we will also let everyone know that the majority of guns are here. And we will also let people know that if Texas was to secede, we would be doing just fine. And so my question is, since Louisiana culturally, you know, outside of the big cities, of course, is so similar to that Southern hospitality, definitely like more, um, let's say Southern Baptist type of Christianity, a little bit evangelical, right? We're very similar in culture because we're so geographically close. Do you think that Louisiana, if there ever was a Texas movement, would come with us? Yeah, that's a million dollar question right there, <laughs> right there. But uh, let me preface this by saying I am a nationalist, so I do want America to stay together. But if it were to happen in Minecraft, let's say that Texas <laughs> did somehow secede again in Minecraft, if it did happen, I'm not so sure Louisiana would join just because I don't see Louisiana bring enough to the table for Texas. And look, I love Louisiana. I came back here. I left Texas after I graduated to come back here. So I really do love my state. But Texas is just its own thing. They can be independent while Louisiana I think is a bit more reliant on the federal government, especially when it comes to the storms we have over here, hurricanes and stuff. We really do depend on FEMA and just government money to fix this up whenever hurricanes destroy our area, unfortunately, like last have happened the last couple of years. So I would, yeah, I would assume probably not. I mean, it would be kind of cool because Texas is pretty awesome. Not going to lie, but I don't think Texas would want us if I were to to (laughs) guess on that. But, oh, yeah, man. that's a, that's a really funny answer. And yeah, I personally don't think at this point Texas should do it because I don't think Texas is ready to be up against Russia and China. And I'm just I'm interested in keeping the United States together. But if it were to happen, it would be, just be interesting. But I think there is some wisdom to saying Louisiana's industry maybe isn't necessarily there yet. But also and, and like the you know, you do like Katrina obviously was a huge disaster and is in the top like 10 hurricanes of the last forever since America has been founded um, Mm -hmm. of death toll and damages. So I think there is some prudence in your answer and I definitely appreciate it. Um, But I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your college experience. So um, you went to Texas Christian University and that is the first place that we met. You were wearing a wonderful uh, purple tie. You remember. (laughs) Of course I remember. It was an awesome tie and you helped me set up my camera for the event we did. And so I always appreciate it. Um, So I wanted to ask, Texas Christian University, right? Private school, allegedly Christian, Dallas, Fort Worth area. So very, very nice area. Um, What was your college experience overall? Yeah, well, it was an interesting time when I was in college, just to put it mildly, especially because I came in middle of my sophomore years when the pandemic hit. So I've seen some stuff in my time in college. Now that I'm done, I can look back and say, man, a lot of stuff happened in just Mm. a couple of years that I I noticed a lot of 
different shifts and trends, both in at my school as well as in the country as a whole. I mean, I'd say as a whole, I enjoyed my college experience. I met a lot of wonderful people there, and that's where I got my start in politics. So I'm really grateful for that, joining the TCU Turning Point USA chapter and the TCU College there. They really got me interested in wanting to get involved politically. So I'm really grateful for that. But of course, you know, TCU is a college, so you definitely saw a good bit of leftist propaganda. And it really started ramping up, I felt like, after 2020, things started getting pushed, especially with uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI. That was added to a lot of the curriculum at TCU. So you really started to see the emergence of DEI and CRT and a lot of what TCU was doing, which was sad. I didn't feel that as much when I started in the fall of 2018. But by the time I graduated in December 2021, I really started seeing that. And I feel bad because I know it's not going to go away anytime soon. Mm. So you're watching the degradation happen. Do you think it was in reaction to like cultural events like the summer of dark, summer of darkness, like BLM? Do you think it was in a reaction to that or was it just kind of a you were getting more uh, sensitive to it as your involvement with the Turning Point chapter grew. Like, what do you think it it was? I mean, I would say it's a, a bit of a both, a little bit of a mixture, because a lot of that was, I guess, occurring before uh, some of the stuff was being put into place. But I would just say it got expedited, accelerated because of all the stuff that happened in 2020 with all the riots that happened in the summer of 2020. So it was more of an acceleration of trends that were put into place beforehand. Because I know the school had looked into a lot of the DEI stuff before then, but I just noticed that it was a lot more visible and vocal on campus than it was, you know, pre compared to post 2020, I'd say. Right. And because in the spring and about March 2020, too, I guess. I went there to do an episode of my show, Sanity Check, and one of the questions we had while we were on campus was, hey, students, what do you think of this new, um, basically, like, diversity center that y'all opened? So TCU, at that point, had this very new center that was specifically for diversity, inclusion, and equity, and obviously, we're seeing this as a trend, especially in, like, more liberal California schools, this trend of creating spaces that are simply and only dedicated to um, people of color and white people are not allowed to go in there. And of course, it's way more extreme on the on the West and East Coast. But even here, you know, in the Dallas Fort Worth area, we're seeing that that I don't know, those projects start to happen where there are safe spaces and things like that. So it is very disappointing um, because I you know, you graduated and that's kind of right after that I went and it was even more accelerated. Then we asked students um, what they thought about transgender men competing in women's sports. And, uh, you know, the majority of them didn't have a problem with it, um, provided I know TCU also has a theater department. So we may have just gotten a bad batch of people. <laughs> yeah, of course. Not everyone's like that. But, yeah, there's definitely a good chunk of the population that would buy into some of that. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask, like, did you ever experience bias, you know, like really extreme bias in your classes? Um, And if so, like, could you give us some examples of of that? Yeah. So I would say this was more in the core curriculum that classes that I took at TCU, the business school, which that was what like I got my degree in business at TCU. 
there wasn't as much of the DEI, CRT, ESG stuff, though that was starting to creep in a little bit. So you're probably going to start seeing that even more in the business school as a whole, just if you see a lot of woke ideology entering into the business world. So it wasn't as much my latter half of TCU stuff that I was seeing personally, but I knew people that were in other schools and departments that were seeing it get really bad in mm. 2021, uh, end of 2020. But it was more so just some core curriculum classes that I took, whether it be some like English comp two class, that was a really uh, <laughs> rough class. And sure. there's a journalism class that I took even, you know, and so-called unbiased journalism, right? You don't really see very much conservative uh, viewpoints there. But yeah, it would, it's that also in the Honors College as well. Honors College might also be the, the one of the worst places on campus with a lot of that, which is disappointing because oh, yeah. that's supposedly the best and brightest of the school. They're taking some super woke classes there. Right. So that's why I stopped taking honors classes after my sophomore year because it was just a waste of time and I wanted to mm-hmm. focus on business. But yeah, it's very real. I noticed it in my content and curriculum. And here I am, a guy from South Louisiana. I went to a private Roman Catholic school over here. So I wasn't really accustomed to a lot of this stuff, only sure. really saw it on the news. So it's it's very real and it's happening in places like Louisiana and Texas is what I try to tell people. This woke ideology is not just in California anymore. It's, it's everywhere. Wow. And so I don't ask this question to like paint you as someone who is compromising or deceitful or things like that. But, you know, a lot of times students are faced with a choice. I can either type this answer, write this answer that I know is going to give me good grades, even though I disagree with it. Um, you know, in terms of having to answer a woke kind of liberal soft question where, you know, the answer they're wanting is either diversity, equity or inclusion. And so do you have like a specific example or a time where you ever had to basically just write what you thought they wanted to hear instead of writing what you're you agreed with just to get a good grade? Yeah, Lily, actually, I'm glad to say that I felt like I never compromised on my beliefs while I was in college when it came to grades and assignments. And I just going into college, I knew that grades, I mean, of course, they seem seems like it really matters in college. But when you finish college, it really doesn't matter as much as you think. So that's to all my college friends here. So don't don't worry about grades as much as you think they are. But I, I went into college knowing that I wasn't going to compromise on my beliefs because if I'm willing to just get a better grade on an assignment and compromise on my beliefs, well, what am I going to do in the future, yeah. right? If it comes to a job or money or something, just doing something unethical or against my beliefs just to fit in or make more money, it's just setting a bad precedent. So I went into college telling myself I wasn't going to do that. And I, followed through. In fact, a lot of times I was kind of the opposite. I tried to, I mean, I wasn't obnoxious in any classes, but I tried to share a different perspective at times when it might not have been what the professor wanted. And I never got penalized, thankfully, on anything, any assignment in that regard. But I definitely didn't want to do anything like that because once you cave a little bit, then you're going to give a a mile, right? So if you give an inch, you're going to give a mile. It's the same. 
Yeah, no, and I, I think that answer is really excellent just because, you know, it speaks well, of course, on your integrity, but also like, you know, once you, like you said, once you give just a little bit, they will take a lot. And also, you know, self-control or being able to stand up, like courage, courage is a muscle and you have to work it out. So I'm just absolutely pumped that you never felt like you compromised in any major way. And it's also refreshing to hear that you weren't penalized for it. I have heard stories of, students at Texas A&M who would get penalized for disagreeing with the teacher. And there's definitely a lot of that happening, you know, intimidation because of grades. Oh, your GPA is going to be bad if you start giving your conservative answers. And there's no tolerance, of course, for freedom of thought or freedom of speech or freedom to discuss and figure out which ideas are superior to others. And um, so that's, that's really nice that you um, had that experience. I hope that experience continues specifically on TCU because it is a beautiful campus. But I wanted to get your opinion kind of just fresh out of the college system. Where do you think American college campuses are going to be in the next 10 years in terms of politics, in terms of the students who are coming out of it just because you just came out of college? Yeah. So do you want me to be honest with you here, Lily? Please, that would be wonderful. <laughs> okay, cool. Because sometimes, you know, when you go on talk shows, they want you to give the good cookie oh, cutter no. answer. So, okay. I didn't think you were like that. So I just wanted to make sure. So in my honest opinion, in the next 10 years or so in the short term, I really do think things are going to get a little bit worse in terms of the mm. political climate on college campuses. And I'd say there's a, a couple of reasons why. One being that... Right now, a lot of conservative governors and state legislative bodies do not seem to have the political will to rein in higher education. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of pushback from conservative politicians, Republican politicians, to really rein in the DEI requirements and the LGBT agenda and CRT that's really creeping into a lot of state universities, especially public universities. And then you also see another thing that's going on, too, is I don't know if this is happening too much right now, but there seems to be a little bit of a conservative exodus from higher education, where you do have some conservative commentators saying that conservatives shouldn't go to college. And of course, there's a lot of issues with college. I don't deny that. But I think there's a problem with that rhetoric, because then it gives higher education completely to the left and even worse than it is now. Mm -hmm. So I think both of those factors are going to make things a little bit tougher in the short term. But in the long term, I actually do have hope, believe it or not, just because I really do believe that Gen Z conservatives are really going to do some good stuff when we get yeah. into power eventually. <laughs> so I think <laughs> that it's going to take younger conservatives as we age and have more influence and in getting into power. We really have seen the consequences of what's going on in higher education. So I do believe there's going to be good things happening in the long term with that. But right now, it's not looking too good. But I will say, though, there's a lot of good political activism that's starting to grow mm -hmm. on college campuses. So that's a saving grace, I will say, for a lot of younger conservatives looking to get into college, into higher education, that you have seen a growth in groups like Turning Point USA and some college Republicans as well, that there's a little bit of a, a growth in youth political activism on college mm -hmm. campuses for right-wingers. So that's going to make things a little bit better 
for your typical college student that you do have some people you can talk to, but in terms of what's happening with college administrations, it's not going to look too good for the short term. But fear not. I, I really do believe some good stuff will be happening in the long term. Yeah, that's awesome. And I definitely sympathize with the whole, yeah, just don't go to college talking point because it very much, obviously, of course, as everything does, comes down to the individual person, you know, like myself, I didn't go to college, but it's Mm -hmm. not because I didn't want to be indoctrinated. It's for many other reasons. I didn't feel like I needed college. I wanted to start my own business. I was given great opportunities from high school and I just wanted to kind of move forward with those. I didn't think I could ever do math homework for four more years after I finally finished algebra two. And so it was just really like, I I just didn't want to go to college, but I think you're right. Um, seceding not only, um, you know, because the, the other half of the rhetoric of don't go to college is okay. Less conservative students are going to go to college. They're going to go to the workforce and not get any student debt. But the other side of that is okay. These student or these students are not going to grow up and want to even go into academia, right? Because going into college, you know, I know too many people who are like, yeah, I want to be a professor at this college that I'm at. And I think that's wonderful. But if conservatives aren't there on college campuses in the first place, they're not going to find that they have a passion for teaching philosophy. And then they're not going to become an administrator or a teacher or a professor in that area. And so definitely I would encourage conservatives to make the right decisions for themselves, but also realize that these long-term consequences is if you're not going to become a professor or a teacher, then someone else will. And that someone else is most likely a leftist because you're creating a vacuum. So I think, yeah, we just have to understand that um, understand that college definitely is not the most necessary thing in the world, like our boomer friends would like us to think. But um, there's there's a real a real argument to be had about holding a stake, at least a stake, in academia. So Nathan, do you have anything final you would like to tell people about Louisiana politics, about Texas, about what's coming next for you, or anything? Yeah. So I would just say that I really do love my home state. I hope people didn't get any like negative thoughts about Louisiana from maybe some of the stuff I was saying about the politicians, maybe this state, but I really do love the people of my home state. That's why I came back. I really do care about making an impact here in my state, but really there is a lot of opportunity in Louisiana to make it a truly MAGA America first state. It's going to take some time, but that's really what my goal is long-term for the state. So I'm going to try my best with myself and other people, young conservatives I know here in the area that really do want to make that happen because we have a lot of opportunity here. We have good people, but it's just not happening right now. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I so enjoyed um, our conversation. I love your love for your state. Sweet. Thank you, Lily, for having me on. You have a blessed day now. Mm-hmm.